I'm Andrew Mitchell, and you're listening to Don't Mess With Nature, a series of podcasts where we look at how to get the world into a better state of equilibrium between natural capital and financial capital. Well, today, I thought I'd delve into the question of why do things get so big? In the finance sector, we see this happening a lot. We see more and more money getting concentrated into fewer and fewer hands. Uh, you might have heard sometimes that you know the, the top one percent sort of manage ninety percent of the money, or people own sometimes very small numbers of people own very large amounts of property in countries. It's a funny thing; it also happens in nature that animals tend to get bigger and bigger and bigger in evolution. Why is it? What's this obsession with? Oh yeah, I know size matters. Well, it kind of does matter in the economy. And it matters in nature because, of course, we have things like the dinosaurs, elephants, and in uh, in the financial world, we get banks that get bigger and bigger and bigger, and investment houses that get bigger and bigger. And I sort of wonder, well, what's the impact of all that? What kind of a footprint uh, does finance have, and is it? gentler if it's bigger and bigger? Is it gentler on nature and on the earth if it's bigger and bigger? Could it be? It takes me back to a story years ago when I was in Amboseli National Park. Because big things sometimes can have very gentle footprints. I was sitting in a tent waiting some friends in the middle of the savannah. I was very young as a zoologist, and they hadn't shown up. And I was left on my own in this circle of tents. Well, the night sort of fell, and I was feeling pretty scared because there's no one around for miles. And I was sitting in these tents and saying, well, what? I'll be fine, you know, lions, they don't, they don't come in the tents. And there were a lot of elephants about, but I'd been reassured that elephants never walk over tents. You get to wonder. Anyway, I thought, well, I, I had a supper, a very nice supper of baked beans and things, and uh, I, um, I made a mistake. I left my baked bean pan out on the table underneath the canopy of the tent, you know, like a little arch in front of the tent. I went to sleep. In the night, I heard the rumbling noise of elephants approaching, and you can hear their legs swishing through the grass. So I, I, I woke up and looked out through the tent flap in the front of the tent, peeked out. And in the moonlight, I could see four or five elephants coming in to the circle of tents. And uh, I thought, well, that's not good, is it? What happens if they come over to my tent? And I, I thought, that's all right. Elephants never walk over tents. So one of these elephants, though, took a sharp right turn and stomped straight over the tent that was about... 30 feet away from me, where all our food rations were, and started stomping around on that and getting its trunk inside and picking out the tins and stuff. And I thought, well, that's not good. I was a bit more alarmed when it, that elephant walked over to my tent and came closer and closer until its head filled my whole vision in front of me. And I sat there shaking, holding on to the tent flaps, and reached behind me and got a wooden mallet 
I don't know what I would have done with it, but one thing I know as a zoologist is the last thing you want to do is run out through your tent flat screaming into the night because you think the elephants, because they're going to chase after you and toss you about like a rag doll because they can outrun a human very easily. So I'm sitting there and shaking and eyeing up this elephant thinking, what's he coming in here for? And as he was turning, his tusks were catching the ropes on my tent, the guy ropes. He was putting his head in underneath this arch. And as he turned, the guy ropes were going twang, twang. But every time he touched a guy rope, he knew he'd touched it and went, you know, moved away. He knew that huge animal could sense the, those little guy ropes. Well, he stuck his trunk out and put his trunk out towards me. It was so close, I could have put my hand out and tapped him on the trunk. And I thought, any minute now, he's going to pull down the tent flaps on top of him, and he's going to take off through the African savannah with me inside the tent, bumping along behind him. So I had to tell the elephant I was there without scaring it. Well, cut a long story short, I blew raspberries at it. I just went, <laughs> so I thought, that will blow my scent, make a tiny bit of noise, and, um, you know, with any luck, he'll know I'm there and back off because he doesn't want to make trouble particularly, I hope. Anyway, it worked perfectly, except the elephant stuck its trunk out at me. It was like a, sort of being on the other end of a hoover, sucking up all this. <laughs> I could hear this tremendous, <sighs> as he breathed in my scent and thought, that's horrible. So he backed off and disappeared round the left-hand side of my tent. And as I was watching it, because I craned my neck round, being a curious zoologist, I could see these vast feet tiptoeing through the guy ropes holding up my tent. And as the foot touched the guy rope, it didn't sweep it out of the ground. It just picked it up and stepped over it. It tiptoed over my guy ropes and disappeared into the night. So it taught me something, which was how to stay calm in a difficult situation. But even these huge animals can be extraordinarily gentle with their footprint. And I sort of wonder, how can we make our finance gentle with its footprint around the world? So I've been looking at the paper today, and this is, I was looking at the Financial Times, and they talked about, this is the headline, the Trillion Dollar Club tightens grip on fund market during lockdown. And there's a fascinating statistic in it, and it says um, the largest 1% of investment groups manage 61% of total industry assets. Have a think about that. What that means is just 1% of the world's financial houses are managing over 60% of the money of industrial assets. Can you imagine the concentration of power that that means? The leaders of those companies are more powerful than governments, potentially. They can move their money around all over the world at the blinking of an eye. They're not beholden to any particular governance by country. And I sort of wonder, well, how come they got so big? It includes members of the what they call the Trillion Dollar Club, include things like BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity, household names. How come they've got so big? Well, the answer is they've reduced their costs they've managed to make it much cheaper to invest in them, but in a really extraordinary way. In a way, in a sense, by going on auto, 
what these big firms are doing is you either have what's called a you know a managed fund where you get you buy the best brains in the world and they tell you where to put all that money and how to invest it and you have people working day and night looking at all the numbers computers models everything you can imagine and it's very expensive to have those teams and they always say well we know how to we you know we need that. they've got to justify themselves and say we got it right we're going to put the money in the right place and then what's happened is they've looked back over 20 years or so, and discovered that it actually doesn't make much difference because they don't always get it right, and the market goes up and down. You wonder why you paid for all those expensive people in the first place. So how about if we just got rid of all of them, saved our money, and just put our money into what are called passive funds? Passive funds are ones that simply follow an index, and they'll just say, well, we'll whatever the index does, we'll do. With any luck, over time, that's going to cost us less money than employing all those brains. So they kind of put the money on auto. The result is that they can offer their services much more cheaply than the smaller financial houses that are still saying, well, we're employing all these people. And what worries me a bit about that is that if you want to reduce your footprint on nature, that's not cheap. It's actually quite expensive because you have to employ clever brains to do something called ESG which is environment, social, and governance. Screening. You've got to screen where the money goes. You've got to track where that money goes and look at its footprint and see has it got good environment, good social, and good governance criteria. There's a worry I have that not only are people trying to predict where best to put their money, and that involves expensive teams who are very brainy and look at a lot of data and they make predictions, now we're trying to add on another further layer of cost called ESG, which is about something new. In the past, people used to just talk about shareholder value. In other words, as long as we're making plenty of profits for our shareholders, if companies are doing that, then that's fine. Now people are saying, well, I mean, there's a funny cartoon which a friend of mine called Pavan Sukdev shows in some of his PowerPoints which is a couple of investors sitting in a desert looking at a, a rather ruined city and saying, yes, but our investment model was brilliant for shareholder value. But they're sitting in a desert and everything's gone. And that's kind of where some people think, you, you know, you could be headed over a long time, is that we need to look after the eco in economy. And if we don't, then it will take away the foundations upon which our economy is built. So you, you've heard me talk about that before. So but that, that costs money. So now there's a new concept, which is stakeholder value, which is not just looking at your shareholders, but also looking at, well, who else are stakeholders in our company? Things like the workforce, human capital, the social capital outside the company, in your supply chain, in your communities you work in, your social capital. And yes, natural capital, uh, because it doesn't make much sense if financial capital is going up and up and up, and that looks great, but your natural capital accounts are going down and down and down. So this is creating a new way to measure financial success in companies, and maybe some of the smartest companies are moving in that direction. But the countercurrent in the other direction is that the big finance houses in the Trillion Dollar Club are sticking all their money on auto in these passive funds, where you can't really have much influence on the companies in the passive funds because you're just sort of blindly following an index. And guess why? It's cheaper.
And nature's a bit like that too, because that's how we ended up with dinosaurs, is because the bigger you are, proportionally for your body weight, the less food you need to eat. If you're a shrew, that's a tiny mammal with a little pointy nose and uh, a little tiny tail in a terrible hurry. And it spends all day in a rush. And it runs around incredibly fast trying to find worms. And it has to eat, I don't know what it is, many times its body weight every day, many times its entire body weight just to stay alive. So it's always in a rush looking for the next worm. What a terrible way to live. And if you're not worried about that, then there's some owl out there that's going to fly down and grab you at night, or there's a hawk that's going to fly down and grab you in the day. It's a terrible life being a shrew. But of course, it keeps the owls and the hawks happy. So if you get bigger and bigger, then two things happen. You need to eat less, and there are fewer things that can kill you. And so the result of that over decades of evolution is that you get enormous animals. And in the past, the biggest ones that ever existed were, of course, the dinosaurs. They got enormous up to about 66 million years ago. And the biggest of all uh, was found in Argentina. And it was, I think it's called, uh, I can't even pronounce it, Argentiosaurus. Argentiosaurus was thought to be about 50 tons in size, maybe 90 feet long. And then in 2014, they discovered another, also in Argentina, that is even bigger. And it, oh, they thought it might be up to 90 tons or 130 feet long, but that's been raised back down to around about 70 or so tons. I mean, these things were enormous. And they moved very slowly. They didn't need to eat much. And there wasn't much that could kill them, not even a tyrannosaur, though, of course, they'd have a go. The other problem with the dinosaurs was, as you probably noticed, they've got not a very big head. And I guess pretty much they go on auto because all you need to eat was pine trees. And there were no flowering plants in those days, by the way. Just think of that. There were no trees that flowered. All those flowers we see in plants, roses, buttercups, beautiful trees with wonderful hanging flowers, didn't exist. They were all sort of pines, trees that spread their seeds on the wind. And chomping them uh, is what the dinosaurs merrily used to do. And by having a really long neck, they could eat the tops of these trees very nicely and other animals couldn't. But they were, it seems, mostly going on auto. Well, it's good to be big. It's good to be big. But what about footprints? What about the impact of money? What about tracking those footprints of all this money going around the world? A number of years ago, I was in Nepal. I was there to record or try to find what turned out to be the largest elephants ever found in the world. There were local stories that, in fact, they were mammoths. And I was working with the Scientific Exploration Society at the time, and a, a very colourful friend of mine called Colonel Blashford Snell. And he was the chairman of the society, and he had organised all these elephants. We, we got uh, five of them to walk all the way from one side of Nepal to the other. We were right over in the west, 
uh, marching them along, and we made a camp alongside the Trezuli River. We had to go and look for these monstrous elephants that people said were living in the bush there. No one had photographed them. No one could be sure what they were. And to find them, we had to find their footprints in the sand and in the mud. So we used to set off every day by elephant, looking down on the mud for these footprints. And one of the nice things that you can find out about elephants is that you can measure the size of their footprint, and that tells you how big the elephant is. So I had got a nice ruler. <laughs> we'd go out looking for these elephants. So and we'd see some elephant footprints, we'd measure them, and we could work out the size of the elephants. But there was another thing I noticed, and that is that every footprint has a fingerprint in it. If you ever, I don't know if you ever looked at the bottom of an elephant's foot, uh, but I have on occasions. And if you look at the bottom, they've got a fingerprint on it, just like our fingers. You know those whirly bits on the end of your fingers? An elephant's foot has the same thing whirly bits all over it and every elephant is different so i thought not only can we measure how big these elephants are once we know who they are we can track them without seeing them by looking at their footprints in fact we could track one of the big problems with elephants in nepal is they go rogue and they come into people's homes and compounds when they're hungry and in harvest time and raid the villages and uh, eat all the grain they'd carefully stored and wanted to sell. Well, of course, the villagers don't like that. So they shout a lot, they get killed by the elephants, and occasionally they put terrible traps out for the elephants around their feet, even dynamite to blow the feet off. This is a bad thing. So you really need to know how to stop these rogue elephants. So I was fascinated by this. I, I called up a friend of mine who was tracking tigers using their footprints. They have footprints too, by the way. And there's another problem with tigers, they eat people too. So if you can track tigers with their footprints, again, sometimes you get a man-eating tiger. Usually it's because he's got old and toothless and can't catch animals anymore, and humans are really easy to get. So they become man-eaters, that's why it happens. So if you can track them uh, with their footprints and fingerprints, that's, that's a good thing, isn't it? So anyway, we went out there, and I got thinking about this. We, we, I, oh, to finish the story, we did find those elephants. There were two of them, Roger Garge and Roger Kancha. And by measuring the footprints, and later we would put them up against a tree. I mean, not literally. We'd wait until they were beside a tree, and you could see their shoulders and then go up and measure the height when they'd moved off. They turned out to be the biggest elephants ever recorded. But their footprints and how to track them, that's what interests me. So I thought, how do you do that with money? Well, there's a new thing around it. It's called impact investing. You might have heard about it, and maybe on another podcast we can talk a bit more about that. But What's fascinating is that there's a new sort of universe. We talked about the change from shareholder value going to stakeholder value and the rise of ESG, and that's environment, social, and governance. Well, that sits in the universe of something called sustainable finance. Sustainable finance is a sort of umbrella term where money is trying to become more sustainable, and that means it's got to be less on auto and more tracking and more understanding its footprint and where it's going. Uh, and part of that leads to sustainable, responsible finance. And then even further down, you get to impact investing. So what's impact investing? Impact investing is when you're trying to produce not just a good profit, but also a social impact. 
or an environmental impact, a good outcome for the environment or a good outcome for people. And that's not what usually business does. They said just profit enough. But there's another thing happening. People are saying, well, what's the purpose of our company? Imagine that you got up every morning and said, well, what's my purpose in life? <laughs> we ask that sometimes, but companies don't usually ask that. But they're being asked to do it now. And all sorts of consultancy firms like McKinsey or PwC, helping companies say, what's your purpose? Because young people today don't want to just have their money in a bank that hasn't got a purpose or work for a company that hasn't got a purpose because it's not enough just to make money anymore. This purpose is filtering down into, well, how do we have impact investments that do good things, have a purpose, produce an environmental social outcome? How do we deliver that? And how do we know it's having the impact that we want it to have? So there's a massive change from some decades ago, you have what's called exclusion funds or ethical investment, where you say, right, I'm not having any military, no weapons, I'm not having any drugs, no prostitution, no child labor, we're excluding all that. But now it's extending into the environment. Uh, and some people say to me in the finance, oh, God, you know, if we go on like this, we're going to have nothing to invest in. Because the bad stuff makes loads of money. I keep it there. But they know that's not sustainable. So as sustainable finance grows, the bad stuff is beginning to be squeezed out. And so that's where impact investing is beginning to emerge. And one of the weird things is, in the recent years, the fastest growing sector of growth in investment is in impact investing and in the sustainable finance space. It's growing fast, but it's still tiny. It's boutique. It's like a little mammal around the dinosaur feet all those years ago. And what stimulates sometimes this massive change when the big I won't call them dinosaurs in the Trillion Dollar Club. They're not dinosaurs. They've got very big brains, but they are huge. And what happened 66 million years ago is there was a massive impact. And the impact was 10 to 15 kilometers across in the form of an asteroid. And it came in from outer space unbelievably fast and went straight into the Yucatan and made a whole 150 kilometers across. It's a crater you can still see today. Now, that produced so much soot and muck up into the atmosphere that plant life largely died out and the entire ecological system collapsed. And the big dinosaurs couldn't find anything to eat. Suddenly, being big didn't work anymore. They couldn't survive. It wasn't a predator that took them out. It was something that came out of left field that they had no idea was coming. And guess what? It was the little things around their feet, the little tiny mammals that were just beginning in those days that took over. And now we see them everywhere in the world. And it's taken a long time for big ones to appear, like the elephants. There were lots of them before, of course, mammoths. And the biggest creatures on Earth are the whales. And they were mammals, not reptiles like the dinosaurs. They are mammals. And they are the biggest in the world, feeding on plankton. So it's a bit strange, isn't it? Because we're being hit now by another thing that's causing a massive impact. And yet it's so small, we can't even see it 
In fact, it's only 125 nanometers across. That is a millionth of a millimeter, and it's called the coronavirus. That is having on the economy almost as much an impact as that asteroid did for the dinosaurs. And what's going to happen? Is being big going to really help? Or are new kinds of investment models going to emerge like the mammals from under the dinosaur's feet? Is the world of sustainable finance and the world of impact investing going to emerge triumphant in the coming decades? Well, here's a clue. In the crisis, we are seeing a massive loss of value in markets. And uh, the Bank of England said we're heading for possibly the worst recession since 1709, when the world was gripped in a deep freeze. Didn't even know you could have a recession back then, but you could. And one thing is rather strange. Fidelity have just recently published a report which shows that the companies that have high ESG capabilities are faring much better in the downturn than those that don't. In fact, in their index, those with high ESG values are performing 9% better than the index they use. That's the tracker index again. Remember those? And the guys who haven't got very good ESG are performing 20 times worse under the index. So the clue here is that thinking about environment, social, and governance seems to be making companies more resilient to withstand these big impacts. And that's not all necessarily the big impacts, big companies, the big investors. It's often the smaller ones, like the mammals under the dinosaur feet. So there's the data. Let's see what happens. You've been listening to Andrew Mitchell, and this is Don't Mess With Nature. Join me next time on another conversational expedition into the jungle of the financial world and the natural world. Thank you.